We were, uh, we were really curious who was going to show up today and who wasn't, so it's good to see you guys. Uh, it's good to come together. We've, been, um, we've moved through Advent, we've celebrated Christ's birth. Christmas Eve, we went through all those candles and told the story again. And now, up until Lent, we're going to continue on through the book of Luke, uh, which I, I really like. I, I'm, I'm happy because this text today, actually, as weird as it seems, is probably one of my, my favorite texts around Christmas time because it's just a different kind of story. I always wonder, after, after I read the text, maybe this will make sense to you, but I always wonder, when Mary and Joseph got home that night, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear their conversation after these events played out in, in Luke chapter 2. Um, it's one of only two stories that we have about Jesus between his birth and his public ministry. We have this one, and we have the one uh, when he's 12. Both of them happen around the temple. That's really all we know of 30 years. And so we're going to look at the first one today in Luke chapter 2, um, starting in verse 21. And we'll read through to, to verse... Um, actually, yeah... Verse 21, we'll read through to verse 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for, for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own, to their own town, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now there's a lot to see here. But, but I want us to start by helping us realize that this early life of Jesus and the life of his parents was a life rooted in obedience. It was rooted in obedience. Luke wants us to be clear on one thing, that Jesus' life, even before he was making his own decisions, his life was rooted in obedience. 
The law of God is mentioned six times in our text here. In the entire book of Luke, it's mentioned nine times. So in the space of 19 or 20 verses, there's six of the nine occurrences. Luke is stressing something about that. He's putting on an emphasis on Jesus' obedience to the law, even when Jesus was a baby, because he's setting the stage for people to realize that, that there was something else going on here, something deeper, that Jesus was coming to do something that the people of Israel couldn't do. The family were faithful to obey what they had been taught in the scriptures. And, and, and one of the main things that you see them obeying on right off is, is this a name filled with meaning. In verse 21, it says he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he'd been conceived. Back in chapter 1, verse 31, you remember the angel said, you'll be with child Mary and you're to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. And Mary and Joseph did exactly what they were supposed to do. They named him Jesus. Now, in, in Hebrew, that's Yeshua. Um, it, it, it actually is, is what the Old Testament equivalent would be, Joshua. And, and Yeshua, Yah, is short for Yahweh, and Shua is part of saves or rescues. So the, whole, the meaning of that is that Yahweh rescues or Yahweh saves. And I always think about that because, you know, as Jesus grew up, Mary would be saying, Yahweh saves, come clean your room or come clean, you know, come, come to dinner. Yahweh saves. She said that over and over, this constant confession of the fact that God was bringing salvation to his people. And just like they did what the angels said, they did everything else, every act in accordance with the law. Verse, verse 21, they have Jesus circumcised and named on the eighth day in accordance with the law. Verse 22, they follow the ceremonial law of Moses because 40 days after he was born, Mary would have been ceremonially pure. They would have gone to the temple and offered a sacrifice for her to, to restore her to ceremonial status there. And at the same time, the, the, the law said, verse 23, that this goes all the way back to the Passover, that every firstborn child is to be redeemed. Remember when God saved the firstborn child? Then he told the people of Israel afterwards, from now on the firstborn child belongs to me. And so every firstborn child you bring and you redeem it with a sacrifice. Or, or, or there's, a, there's a gift of money. There's different things they do that the law prescribes, but they're doing all this stuff. And they did it by offering a sacrifice, showing they were poor. You've heard this. They didn't offer a lamb. They offered two, two doves or two pigeons, which is what the, the poor, lower-class people would do. And just in case you missed all of it, again in verse 27, Luke says, when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Do you see how he keeps saying that? The law of the Lord, this custom of the law required it. And if you miss it, by the end of the passage in verse 39, he says it again. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. It's important because what, what Luke is saying here is that Jesus is doing what Israel did not, even before he's old enough to make his own decisions. He's keeping the law. He's living in line with it in surrender to God. He's, his parents are helping him to be faithful even before he has the ability, physical ability, to choose to, to obey the law himself. Because he's going to embody this new Israel. That's the idea, that there's, there's a new Israel, there's a new son that has come that's going to be faithful, a new Adam that has come and is going to be faithful. And that's what it means to live out this life that's called Yahweh Rescues. That's what it means to be faithful to what God's called him to. That's his calling and his mission. And even in, in, in his young age it's, a, age, it's a mission that's affirmed by others. As is often the case, God sends these people 
into Mary and Joseph's life, into Jesus' life, to help him remember and discern the calling that he's been given. That's why we say relationships are so important in our spiritual life, because we need each other to help us understand those things. And at times when we have people come into our life, they tell us things that are life-giving and supportive and encouraging. We feel really good. At times, other people come into our lives and they tell us very, very difficult things, things we might not want to hear. But we need those relationships to keep us on task. And in our text, we see two people, Simeon and Anna. They come out of nowhere, and they confirm to Joseph and Mary that those events we talked about on Christmas Eve, what they had been through just over a month ago, were as real as real can be. You ever had a, one of those experiences and then time passes and you start questioning yourself, right? They've changed this baby's diapers for 40 days now. He doesn't seem as glorious as he did that night when the shepherds were coming to bow down, right? He's crying, he's doing all, and yet here, 40 days in, God sends Simeon and Anna, people that they didn't know, to them in the temple to reaffirm that calling. Anna is this prophet uh, a widow who's lived in the temple constantly, um, and she, we don't really get what she says. They don't tell us, but she, she does tell everybody else about who this child is. She praises God. She's saying things about him. But, but Simeon, he's the one that comes first, and we get more of what goes on there, and he's kind of a mystery. That's, I think that's what I like about this story. Who is this guy? It says he's a righteous and devout man. He's been longing for the consolation of Israel. There's a statement that Jews would make. I, I'm trying to, I was trying to put it in the context of what we would say. Like if it, one, one example is, you know when, when a child wants a puppy and they say, oh, I'll take care of it, I'll feed it, I'll walk it, I'll do everything. It's, it's this, this kind of longing, desiring something, but also committing something, committing yourself to something. And that's kind of the, the nature of that phrase. They would say, may I live to see the consolation. Same Greek word that, that Luke uses there. May I live to see the consolation, the, the healing of Israel, the hope of, let me live that long, God. That's what I, they're begging and they're pleading, but they're also committing themselves to it in that sentence. And it says that for Simeon, the Holy Spirit was on him. Remember we talked about that when, when Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit? Right? Not everybody had the Holy Spirit living in them at that point. Simeon did, and he's prompted. He goes into the temple. He sees this baby. He Maybe culture was very different then, but how would you feel if you were at church and some stranger came up and took your baby, right? Um, he came up and he took Jesus in his arms, and then he, he sings this song of praise to God, and then he speaks specifically to Mary and Joseph, and then even more specifically to Mary. And his song that he, that he sings, Luke's really into these songs, right? Zechariah sings one, the angels sing, Mary sings and Simeon sings, but his song is focused on what Jesus will be, God's salvation, right? God's rescue. That's the name, Yahweh saves. God has prepared this child, he says in his song, to be the way, the, the way that salvation and healing and wholeness comes to the world, and it's really quite a statement. Now, you've got to set the tone and really think about this. This is not the grandparents coming over and looking at baby Jesus and saying, oh, he's so advanced, Look, you know, this is not just some, oh, what a cute baby, right? It's not somebody paying them a compliment. He's actually saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've prayed for, that we've sang about, that we've celebrated the festivals about for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's this baby right here. This is the one. 
this total stranger, naming your child as the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. That's what the song is. This, is. this is who this child will be. The salvation of Yahweh has taken on hands and feet and legs and a voice. This is it, embodied right here, guys. Look, this is him. Then he moves on to who Jesus will be for. He says he'll be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Now, this is, this is beginning to push the envelope for the Jews of that day, right? Because Jews were, Gentiles were still seen as dogs. They still weren't seen as the same status as Jews. Even though the Old Testament has said this over and over, that he's coming for the whole world, the Jews still had this elevated sense of their own importance. And, and he says he's come for the whole world, not just the Jewish people. It'll be the glory of the Jewish people, but it's a light of revelation. In other words, the way the Gentiles will get to know God. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. And one theme I hope, well, I, I've seen it, and I've tried to stress it all through Advent, is that God comes for everybody. It's, it's, it's not based on our merits at all. It's not based on the holiness of the life we've lived up until now. He, he welcomes everyone. As we journey through Advent, he loves all people. The way he came to us forces us, if we're honest, to see that he wants to come to everyone, not just the ones like us, not just the ones we feel comfortable with. He's saying even to the Jews, not just for the Jews, for everybody. You know, for the Jews, the Messiah had been all about them. They, they wanted to be liberated. They had this idea that the Messiah would be the Jewish king that would elevate the Jewish nation over all the rest of the world. And what, what Simeon's saying in his song is that he's come as a light of revelation for the Gentiles as well. It says his parents marveled at what was said. I bet they did. I bet they did. I bet they just they had to be the strange. That's why I want to know what they talked about that night after Jesus was finally asleep. You know, what did they talk about? They asked, was that real? And then comes the hard part, because this is a broken world. Anybody notice that? It's a broken world. It's messed up. And people don't always want what God wants. And that means the calling of the Messiah contains both encouraging yet difficult words. Encouraging in that Simeon, it says Simeon blessed them. Mary and Joseph, he blessed them. He pronounced a blessing upon them. And then he goes into this stretch of probably more difficult words. One thing is for sure, this child, he says, is going to turn reality on its head. He'll be, he'll be one that's going to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. He's going to be a sign that will be spoken against. The powerful will be brought low, the humble will be raised up, and Mary must have been thinking about her song. Remember, she sang about that very same thing, and here we are ten months later, more or less, and Simeon's re rehearsing that same thing, the rising and the falling of many. He'll be a sign that will be spoken against so that the hearts of many will be revealed. Lots of times people don't like their hearts to be revealed. We don't usually like our hearts to be revealed. You know, when we do something that we're ashamed of, we hide it because we don't want that aspect of our heart to be revealed. But life won't be the same, he says, because of this baby. 
You don't encounter Jesus and remain neutral. And perhaps the, the hardest and heaviest words that Mary would hear were these, a sword will pierce your own soul too. As hard as, as that is to hear, I do find it encouraging because how many of you at one point in your life have felt like a sword has pierced your own soul? We've, we've had moments, right? Could be personal failure, could be weakness, could be grief, tragedy, tragedy. Could be unmet expectations. And, and if this happens to Mary, right? This is, may it be to me as you have said, Mary. She's the surrendered one. And if God says to the one who surrendered to, to, to carry the Messiah, to, to follow this life, if, if, that, if, if a sword will pierce her own soul too, it's not like she's got this elevated status that's going to give her this glorious life. Right? We are going to have these difficult times as well because the road to renewal of our own hearts, of our own lives, is going to be painful at times. Simeon isn't sugarcoating it. And I think that's the point that I see in this story. Simeon says, the Messiah has come. Yahweh rescues. Yahweh saves is here. But the process is going to be a, a bumpy ride. He's driving at what I referred to in that poem on Christmas Eve, the work of Christmas. You know, we've spent four weeks building up to it, preparing our hearts to celebrate the gift we've been given uh, now we've, we've, we've celebrated the birth of Christ. And then now Christmas starts working on us. Howard Thurman, who was a pastor and a teacher, uh, he really was kind of the theologian behind the civil rights movement in the United States. He was a personal mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, which is an incredible book. Um, they said Martin Luther King Jr. carried it in his briefcase everywhere he went. He was so impacted by that book. But but as I shared on Christmas Eve, this, this little poem or a litany that he wrote, The Work of Christmas, he writes, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. You see, this work of Christmas is that our whole lives are to be this, this portrayal of the coming of the Messiah into the world. Galatians 4.19, I love this verse. Paul says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, this isn't easy, but what is he doing until Christ is formed in you? He says, I'm giving birth to Christ being born in you. And the broken world hangs around us like this cloak of death as we try to bring forth Christ in our lives, as we, we surrender. And the shedding of our old life and this, this, this death that's plagued us for so long can be a painful process. But the point is that the pain is not pointless. The pain has a purpose. A sword will pierce your own soul, but the point of it all is that Yahweh rescues. Jesus is still coming to us and through us, and that's the work of Christmas. What I see in the text, it's, first it's reflecting this, the light of revelation. It says in verse 32, he'll be, a, he'll be a, a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, a way that the world, the whole world, can have a revelation, can see who God is and what he's like. 
Remember John the Baptist? I love that statement of John the Baptist. He must, the disciples were saying, hey, John, man, this new guy that you called the Lamb of God is taking all your followers. We can hardly get a crowd anymore because he's here, right? And don't kid yourself. They're John the Baptist's disciples, but there's something comforting about having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to listen to your teacher teach. And then they start going somewhere else. And you know what John the Baptist says? He must become greater I must become less. And that's exactly the work of reflecting the light of revelation. As people look at us, they have to see less of us and more of Christ. Our whole life is this gradual process of us stepping out of center stage and putting Jesus and the way he would live and the things he cared about in the middle. That's why we open our doors to people when they need shelter. It's why more and more hopefully we live less according to our own agenda and more according to the values and the desires of Jesus. This is the call for the followers to reflect him to the world in such a way that the world is captivated by him, right? That they actually fall in love with this, who is this guy? When they begin to see what he does and how he lives and the things he values as it's played out in our lives, we, we step out of it and they become captivated by Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Jake preached one of the best sermons I've heard on this passage. But this idea that, that as we go about our life, we become less and he becomes more and this fragrance of the knowledge of God flows out everywhere. And following it, comes what I call the two sides of salvation. There's always challenges that come with this. As we surrender and live like Jesus, there's always challenges. It's never received exactly like we think it will be. That's why Simeon mentions that rising and falling of many and that it will be a sign that, that, that will be spoken against. When we truly reflect the love and grace of Jesus, there are people who are drawn to it and there are people who are repulsed by it. It's just a reality. People who reject it, people who avoid it. It seems so strange that people would reject love and mercy, but the reality is we do it ourselves all the time because it's, it puts us in this vulnerable, vulnerable position. It takes us out of control. The love and mercy of God come hand in hand with our surrender, and people don't, we don't like to surrender. And I want to be clear here. You know, we, we talk about these two sides of salvation. Some people love Jesus and some people just reject it. And if we're not careful, our minds slip into this idea that, that we're presenting Jesus and we're a little bit better than the rest of the world. And so they don't like us because we're so good. Right? And it, we can easily drift into that. And we, we worry about the, the world structures and the liberals and the who knows whatever and the, the, we, all these things that are going on there. And we just think, oh, yeah, they're just being repulsed by Jesus. And yet, when we look at Jesus, it's all those people that were in the scriptures that were actually drawn to him. The people that were repulsed by Jesus were the arrogant, prideful religious leaders. Right? And it doesn't say this, this man will cause the falling and rising of many in Rome. It says he'll cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Right here in our own Jewish house, he's going to upset the apple cart. Often it's, 
It's more like our welcome and our grace make the religious people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> because I've, I've built my life on my reputation. I've, I've got so much status in my faith. People look to me as a leader. And all of a sudden we're welcoming these people that have no history, no track record, these people that make poor decisions over and over. Do you see where that tension comes in? We have to be really careful not to elevate ourselves in this case. To make sure that that, that two sides of salvation is seen clearly, that often it's, it's us pushing away the grace of God because we want to keep our pride. Jesus upsets the religious apple cart. He pushed away those who lived on their own merits, the proud, the elite. He welcomed the lowly and the needy. And that's the call. As we reflect him to the world, very often it may be those who feel religious that reject the way we, we act and we live. And it may be that those who the religious people keep out are the ones that are drawn to Jesus because he loves them no matter where they are. That passage Paul writes in 2 Corinthians continues, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these? Who can do this? Who's sufficient for these things? You see, this calling places on us the weight of standing in the middle, of, of trying to reflect the grace of God into the world. And that's, that's what I think he says to Mary. Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. If we're going to stand against the pressure to make life about how good we look or how good we do things, we're going to feel the weight, the pushback. Because this child Jesus has come to change things. He's come to upset uh, the status quo. And it's going to make life hard for Mary because in a broken world, they kill Messiah. That's what they do. If Jesus was such a great guy, why did the powerful, and it wasn't Rome, <laughs> it was the religious powerful that crucified him, that wanted him to get crucified. Yeah, Rome was the way that got, got it done. But it was the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees that, that promoted it, that pushed it. The beauty of it, now this is what I want you to see, we're, we're kind of taxiing in for the landing here, but it's really important, so stay with me for 10 more minutes, if you can do that. The beauty is that in that brokenness, in that sacrifice, in that soul pierced by a sword, in that suffering, the new life actually comes out of that. Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians, we're hard pressed on every side but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. I was listening to, many of you may know the name, Henry Nouwen. He was a, a priest. He died several years ago. Uh, professor in, of theology at Harvard and other really highbrow places and spent the last years of his life actually as a volunteer with the L'Arche community, working with people with mental handicaps. Um, and, and he was, I was listening to this talk, it's on a podcast I listened to, and he, he was talking about that journey to Emmaus. You remember after the resurrection, these two disciples are walking along and Jesus is walking with them. And they don't, they're kept, it says, from recognizing him. In other words, God's playing hide and seek there for a minute with them. 
and, and their faces are downcast, and he begins to tell them the story of him all throughout the Old Testament. And when they get to their house in Emmaus, after they've walked this seven or eight miles from Jerusalem, they ask him to come in, and they sit down, and it says, and, and then he, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and then they realized who he was. And Henry Nouwen said, I'm, I'm realizing that that's exactly what Jesus did. His life was taken. His life was blessed when the Father said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then his life was broken, and it was given to the world. And it was in that, in that breaking and that giving that, that the life actually came. And he said, and I'm realizing that's our calling too, right? That, that, and he says, you know, I do, I, I do the Eucharist in his service. And he says, I, I take the bread, and I, I bless it, and then I break it, and then I hand it out. I give it out. And he said, taking it, there's something about being taken. And that's where, it, it, he says, I'm choosing, choosing this bread. I'm saying, this is what the world needs. We're, and, and, and you, my friends, you're taken, you're chosen by God. And you're blessed. Because, because of the grace of Jesus, he can say to you, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah, I know you screw up all the time, but I've taken care of that. But he says, we're also broken. And he says the, the temptation is in, in our brokenness is to just give up, to feel like it's all about the curse. But he says what we have to do is, is take that brokenness and put it under the blessing. To realize that even in our broken state, that we are the beloved of God, that we are the one that he says, you're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, even in our brokenness. And then in that, the life comes that is given to the whole world. See, that's, that's Mary too, right? She's chosen, she's taken, she's blessed. Blessed are you, Mary. And then she's broken. As she watches her son struggle, as she watches the, the, the crowds rise and fall, she watches the religious leaders, the people that everyone look up to, call for his crucifixion, she watches him die. She's, she's broken. But in that, the life of God comes to the world. Right? We're called to reflect the revelation of God. And that presses us at times with this weight of being in the middle. It, it exposes our brokenness. And, and, and having this brokenness in us just weighs us down. And, and it, it can be brokenness from our own problems. It can be brokenness from things that happen outside. It can be brokenness that God allows so that the mercy of grace actually just spills out of us. But it, it's in those four steps of being taken blessed, broken, and given that the world begins to see who Jesus is. See, the, the text is just another testament to the slow but sure plan of God. I love this story because you know what? Israel had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to show up. Simeon and Anna had been waiting for decades for the Messiah to show up. Mary and Joseph had been waiting for 10 months for this particular day. Right? And, and it, yet God still is doing things, and we're waiting now for him to come. But, but the beauty is in all of these things, Israel got to see their Messiah. Simeon and Anna got what they promised. Mary and Joseph began to realize who this is. 
And we can, we can hold on to that. We, we talked in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I, I want you to realize, because this is a weird stretch of year too, right? This, this, this gap between Christmas and New Year's, we're, we're kind of over the celebration of Christmas a little bit, and now we're thinking about New Year's, and, and then you start thinking back on your life. For the past year, you start thinking about the coming year. It's this in-between place. But what I want you to realize is that in this in-between place, we can trust in the slow but sure work of God, that we have been taken, we've been chosen. We've been blessed with the mercy and the grace of God. And even if we don't see it, we're his beloved. He loves us deeper than we even can realize. And that brokenness that we struggle with, that we just hate or that we don't know what to do with is a step in us being given out to the world so that the light of Jesus can be revealed. You see, and it's, it's this slow and steady work that one day will come to fulfillment. Revelation 21.5, I've got to get this in like every third sermon. I have to have this text on the screen because you need to hear this. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You know what? After that, there's no brokenness. It's all new. The work of Christmas is to walk this pathway to be taken, to be blessed, to be broken, and to be given out so that the world can see who Jesus is until all things are made new. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these um, Simeon and Anna. I wish we knew more about them. Just reminds me how God uses people that we don't even know in ways that we don't expect in our lives, and please help us to be open to that, God. I pray for each person here today that they would be reassured of their takenness, that you have chosen and called them. God, I pray that, that you would speak your word to them of beloved child. Help us to see past our own faults and our own mistakes to the love that covers all of that to a love that forgives a multitude of sins. And then, God, as we deal with brokenness, whether it's our own doing or we've messed up again or whether it's something that's happened that has just destroyed us, I pray that we can bring that under your blessing, that we can realize even in the brokenness that your love for us is there and real and it can transform that brokenness in a way that gives you out through us to the world. Help our lives to tell the story of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And who is he that lives in you and lives in me and goes out to hope right now, the king of glory? Right? That's, that's the story, the whole story of Jesus' life, and, it, and it's continuing right now as the Holy Spirit works to give birth to Christ in you. So you're taken, you're blessed in your brokenness, just give yourself to the world and let God show up. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.